0: Hi, I'm Josh, and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast that talks the art and craft of nature photography. It is the 24th of February, 2023, and this is podcast number 65. And where am I going with this podcast? <laughs> the topic of the day. So the topic of the day is actually going to be cropping and cropping in wildlife photography. What are my thoughts on cropping? How should you crop? When should you crop? What are the ethics involved? And this topic was actually a suggestion from a regular listener, Anil. Thank you very much for that, Anil. Great idea. It's something that I actually have been meaning to talk about for quite some time. And um, it's a topic that comes up a lot on when I'm leading workshops. I get asked a lot about cropping and what are my thoughts about cropping and when to crop and how to crop. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive today on cropping in specifically in wildlife, but also it relates to landscape photography. In fact, it just relates to nature photography in general, I think. So I think you can reply the label of nature photography to to this podcast and my thoughts on cropping. I'll give you my opinion on cropping, how I crop as well, and when I crop, uh, and we can go from there, basically. We'll just see how how much of a deep dive we can do on that. Just before I get into that, though, a couple of other small housekeeping items. You may have noticed there's new podcast art, I decided today that it was just time for all some new art, and I had a fantastic portrait that was taken of me in the field on my Arctic fox trip by by Anne, and she sent it to me after the trip. and I thought, well, great opportunity to refresh the podcast artwork. So there is a new piece of art for for the podcast, and that will uh, that's replaced the old one. Um, a few other bits and pieces. I am I'm actually currently in Melbourne, Australia. Still, I got home about. Uh, about four or five days ago now, uh, and then I actually had to turn around and immediately go to Sydney uh, to the Slovak Consulate where I have lodged my citizenship do- documentation. That could take now anywhere from two months to two years to come through, but I needed to do that. It was pre-booked and pre-arranged, so I literally walked in the front door at home, I dropped my bags, I unpacked, I went to bed, I got up at 5am, drove back to the airport and went to Sydney. So I was quite glad to get home that night. Uh, I was only in Sydney for the day, and then to be able to have a few days away from, from airplanes has been really, really nice. I have got a pretty bad case of jet lag, so I've been waking up 3 a.m. Uh, the last few days. Hopefully, I will sleep a little better tonight. We'll just see how that goes, but um that's what happens with when you're doing sort of a lot of international back-to-back travel. That's really, really hard, and I've done a whole podcast on jet lag in the past and how I try and deal with it, but it just seems there's a lot of physiological issues and factors that play into jet lag. So I never quite know how bad it's going to be. But anyway, I'm flying out on the 27th. Uh, that is in three days time, two and a half days now, because it's the afternoon of the 24th. Uh, and my destination is Ellesmere Island. It will be a year since I was there last, um, looking for the white wolf in winter. And I'll be flying from Melbourne, uh, on the 27th to Sydney and then Sydney to Toronto and then Toronto to Ottawa. And then I'll have two nights in Ottawa uh, before I take five more flights to Greasefjord in Ellesmere Island. So the fl- I've talked about this before, but just very briefly, the flights are uh, Ottawa to the Iqaluit, Iqaluit to Arctic Bay, Arctic Bay to Pond Inlet, Pond Inlet to Resolute, and finally Resolute to Greasefjord. So it's eight flights from Australia to get there. It takes the better part of four days. Um, that's assuming that there are no delays and that everything goes according to plan. Which it rarely does in the high Arctic. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. But I am looking forward to getting back to Ellesmere. It's a very, very harsh environment up there this time of year. You know, temperatures are going to dip probably below minus 50 degrees Celsius again. Going to be out in the field for very extended periods of time. I've got two expeditions coming up. The first one is specifically for the White Arctic Wolf, although, of course, we'll take any other wildlife that we come across. And then the second one is dedicated just to polar bears. So I'm going to be in Ellesmere Island all of March uh, and we will return to Ottawa and then make my way to Svalbard uh, for my Svalbard Spring Light Expedition which is my winter expedition, and actually is my last official expedition to Svalbard for the foreseeable future. Now, having said that, some of you no doubt will have noticed that there is a Svalbard trip that's turned up on my website for next year, for summer next year. Yes, that's true. It's a private charter for a a client of mine who wants to take the entire ship. So I will be in Svalbard again next year for that trip. But um, I'm not actually going to be guiding any other trips to Svalbard uh, next year. I'm really watching the regulations very, very closely. Some of them are already in effect. Others are still being proposed. Others are scheduled to come into effect. So it's a bit of a mess up there at the moment. I've also got a scooter ex- expedition as well for a couple of days. We're pl- my plan for that is to go out to Monbukta on the east coast uh, and look for polar bears both days. So we'll see how that goes as well. So there's a lot coming up. So I'm packing at the moment for, for these trips. And, um, in fact, why don't I just talk about equipment for a moment and what's going with me. It's pretty simple for this trip. I'm taking the two EOS R3 cannons, uh, the 1435 for my wide angle, a 70-200 to 200, um, for mid to long, and then a 600 with a 1.4 converter. And that's pretty much it. Uh, a couple of spare batteries... Um, my Swarovski binoculars. And that's about it. I'm already going to have two huge big duffels because of all the serious winter clothing I need for Ellesmere Island. So I really wanted to go as light as I could with camera gear. And that is really pared down to pretty much to the bone for me. Uh, I really don't want to have to take anything more than that. I, I'm in two minds about taking the 100 to 500 instead of the 70 to 200. I may still do that. Um, I'm not 100% sure yet. I know in Ellesmere I'm pretty much only going to use the 600 for wildlife. So it's really just maybe do I take the 100 to 500 for spell, but I'll probably decide on the last day. I, right now, I just can't, I can't make up my mind. So anyway, let's put all that to one side and come to the topic of the day, which, as I said, is cropping. And it's cropping as it relates to nature photography. And just to, I guess, as a bit of background, my thoughts on this. So I studied the art of photography back in the film days. So I went to Photography Studies College here in Melbourne, um, and that's where I did my degree. And then I also did a diploma in photojournalism from the Australian College of Journalism. Now, back then, there, there was no such thing as digital photography. Everything was film. I was shooting a lot of 35mm transparency at the time, or chromes. And I really learned very much to crop in camera uh the reason for that was with a chrome or a transparency you really didn't have much choice you either got it right in camera uh or you had to make a print and crop the print afterwards because the only thing you could do with a transparency was potentially make a duplicate of it and a duplicate was a duplicate it wasn't a uh it wasn't a copy that you cropped so i learned to crop in camera and to shoot In camera and try and get it as close to right as I could in the camera and that's something I still do today it's just been ingrained in me because that's how I learned now I do crop my images it's important to understand that and I do it in 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 post-production but I try and get it as accurately or try and get it as right as I can in the camera and I'm not saying this is a right or a wrong way of doing it it's just my way of doing it and then what I'll do is if I need to crop further I'll do that in post-production now, when I am cropping in post-production, I'm almost always cropping to the same ratio, uh, the same 35mm ratio as the original file. And there's a number of reasons for that. One, I like that, 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 that format. Uh, it works for the type of images that I print. It works for my website. Um, and it just, it just works for me. So I usually crop to the same format as the camera's sensor. And if I do crop to a different format, it's almost always because I want to do a panorama uh, or I want to do a square. So if you're seeing a panorama or a square from me, you're pretty much rest, can be uh, rest assured that it was cropped from the 35 millimeter frame. Uh, that's just the way I go about doing it. Very, very occasionally, I'll stitch for a panorama but I don't do many panoramas. I probably shoot one or two panoramas a year and almost everything else I shoot is to the 35mm format because that particular format works for me, uh, particularly in wildlife photography. It's not my favourite format for landscape images where I prefer 4.5, to be honest. Um, I think that's just a nicer format for landscape images in general. But for wildlife, 35mm format is fine. It, uh, it works for me. That's, that's the format that I like to use. So... Um, let's just talk about when, when I am cropping and I'm doing it in post-production, I'm doing it in Lightroom. But I think what's important to know is I'm cropping to the subject, meaning let's take, for example, a photograph of an arctic uh, fox that I might have just been photographing a few weeks ago in Iceland. I'm cropping to that particular subject. So when I'm photographing the fox, if the fox is sitting still and the fox is looking from left to right, then I'm going to Put the fox on the left of the frame so that the fox is looking into the image so all that space on the right hand side is going to be positive space and the space to the left of the fox is going to be negative space and i don't want to have too much negative space in my photograph so that's when i'm cropping in camera but then what i might do in post-production is i might refine that crop this very slightly and i'll do that in lightroom so i may just crop in a little tighter than i had done in the field um, to the same format and to the same idea I'm trying to achieve the same thing that I was trying to achieve in camera. I'm just having a second go at it, if you like, or it's an opportunity to refine the crop. I'm never really cropping heavily unless I've made a mistake in the field. So if the fox is, again, sitting still and it's looking from left to right, and I've put the fox on the right-hand side looking out of the frame and – I love the pose of the fox, but I've got all this empty negative space on the left that I might crop it very, very tightly. But that's very rare for me. I would prefer still to try and get it right in the camera. Um, It's unusual that I need to crop that tightly. Most of the time for me, it's just a small refinement in the crop and not a huge crop, if you like. Um, I'm also never cropping to exclude things from the image. That's something I very much do in camera. So I do believe in shooting tight to exclude things. Photography, after all, is a subtractive process. It's not an additive one. So when I look through the viewfinder in the field, I'm thinking about what can I take away from this photograph to make the photograph a better image? Um, It's never about what can I add to it. It's always subtractive. So when I'm looking through the viewfinder to photograph an arctic fox or whatever it might be, whatever the subject might be, I'm asking myself what is it that I can crop out, take out of the frame to make this a better photograph? And so usually it's small bits of grass that might be sticking up through the snow or a rock or whatever it might be. And I'll crop it in the camera, meaning I'll I'll exclude it before I actually press the shutter. That way I don't have to worry about cloning it out later on, which is something I don't do. Uh, I really don't clone things out of my photographs. Uh, I prefer to try and crop it out in the field. Uh, If I didn't see it and I can crop it out in post-production, I will do that. I will take it out in post-production by cropping. But that, again, is a very, very rare thing for me. I don't often find the need to do that. I find that most of the time I can do it uh, in camera in the field. And it's just the way I prefer to work. As I said, this is the way I was brought up, the way I learned the craft of photography. Um, I do believe that you know the ethical side of this does play a factor depending on the type of photography that you do. So what I mean by that is, in fact, let's just talk ethics for a minute while while I've brought up the topic. So if you're a commercial photographer, for example, pretty much anything goes. If you need to do a multi-image composite, you need to crop heavily, you need to overlay images, whatever it is that the client needs, everything's open. There's no rules. Go for it. You do what you need to do. That's the way commercial photography is. Um, If you are a documentary photographer, which I guess is the other end of the scale, then it's a very, very different story and and cloning things in and out of the images, multi-image composites, things like this are generally very heavily frowned upon, as is extensive cropping. Now, small crops, I think these days in documentary photography are tolerated. Uh, as a small refinement of the image, but I certainly think heavy cropping uh, is still frowned on from a documentary perspective. So, nature photography tends to fall more towards documentary. Uh, for me, at least for me personally, I want my photographs to represent nature, and when my people when people look at my photographs, I want them to know that this is a true representation of nature and not something that I've created in a computer. That's very, very important to me. I think it's disingenuous actually to put an image out there and let the viewer believe that this is part of, uh, some of, in English, let the viewer believe that this was taken uh, out in the field and is a true representation of nature when in fact it might not have been. It might have been a multi image composite, could have been cropped heavily, things could have been cloned in and out of the image, all that sort of stuff goes on all the time. But I think it's important, at least in my mind, that the viewer can look at my photographs and know that this is a representation of nature that is true Uh, and yes josh might have cropped it when he shot it uh, but the lens is cropping the image and the scene anyway so all i'm doing is moving back and forth uh, or zooming the lens in and out to refine that crop in the field before i press the shutter and then if i need to touch up the crop later on i will do that in post-production but as i say for me most of the time i find i can get pretty close to right in camera and usually it's just a very small adjustment in the field so as i say very rare for me to have to do uh, have to do a heavy crop another aspect to cropping that we should probably just talk about is higher megapixel sensors and the ability to crop into the subject and thus shoot with a shorter lens or shoot a subject that's further away so I see this a lot from people who shoot high megapixel sensors in the field. And by high megapixel, I mean 45 megapixels or more. So typically people who are shooting those sort of sensors, and that's a lot of people these days because, let's be honest, there are not many sensors under that anymore. A lot of these people will crop uh, after the fact quite heavily. So they can shoot in the field with a shorter focal length lens than I can shooting a 24-megapixel sensor and then crop into the subject in post-production. What are my thoughts on that? Well, I think it's fine. Um, I don't think there's any issue with doing that these days. Uh, I certainly don't have an ethical issue with it. I don't think it's a misrepresentation of nature at all. It might be a misrepresentation of how close somebody was to the subject, but that really is a bit of a non-issue, I think. So cropping, if you have a high-megapixel sensor into the subject, I think is just fine. It gives you the ability to travel with Smaller lenses. Um, yes, you're going to give up some megapixels, but you're also saving a lot of weight um, and expense of very big, very fast telephoto lenses. So the ability to crop into the subject with high megapixel sensors, I think is a very, very good thing for those who have that capability. Now, of course, there have been times in my own photography, particularly when photographing from ships, actually, when I've seen the image in my mind's eye as I stand on the side of the ship, but I don't have the right, the right lens and I know, okay, I'm going to shoot it anyway and I will crop to the image in my mind's eye after the fact because that's the only way I could get the image at the time. And usually when I do this, I will disclose it if I post the image on social media because I'm not ashamed of it to say, you know, I, I didn't have the right lens to photograph this. I had to heavily crop it. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it can often be the case when you're shooting from ship that you don't want to include immediate foreground because you might be looking at something that's off towards the horizon. And you do need to crop quite a bit of image of the image away in order to get the image as you envisioned envisioned it. And I think that's what's important. I think it's important to have a vision that you are cropping to. It's not really, it doesn't really make sense to just crop arbitrarily. It makes more sense to have a vision that you are working to. So with particularly again with wildlife photography, because wildlife photography is so much about the background behind the subject, you need to consider that heavily. I believe when you're framing the image, um, perhaps that's actually a better word than crop when you, before you press the shutter, we should talk about it as framing the image rather than cropping the image in camera, because that's really what it is. It's framing the image in camera to minimize doing any cropping in post production. And that's, I guess, the methodology that I approach and, and, and have done for many, many years now in my photography, in my nature photography, my landscape or my wildlife. As I said, I do have preferred Format. Uh, the 5 4 format for the landscape for me works incredibly well. I love that format. Uh, I just think it works extraordinarily well. But for wildlife, I prefer the 35 millimeter format, and I tend to do more wildlife these days. So that's typically the format that I use. So there we go. I think that's pretty much it. That's my thoughts on cropping. What in relation? Uh, in relation to the ethics of cropping, why I crop the way I do—it's because I—that's I, the way I learned to do it. Because I had—I was shooting transparencies, and there was just nothing else. So that's it. That's how I—that's how I, I like to to work in the field and and crop my images. So let's wrap it up for the for the day. There it has been the, what did I say the date was today? I'm so jet-lagged. It has been the 24th of February 2023. I've got to try and get a good night's sleep. 24th of February 2023. I'm Josh. This will probably be my last podcast before I leave for Ellesmere Island. I might try and squeeze one in when I get to Ottawa, because I will be offline a lot of the time while I'm in, um, while I'm in Ellesmere I'll have uh, just one or two days between expeditions when I hope to be able to catch up. But anyway, that's it. I look forward to seeing you out in the field. Take care.